All right, good morning. This morning we are finishing up our series to the married and unmarried. This is the final part now, part seven. The title is Sex. And I did not intend on this being the last topic that we covered in this series, just so you know. Um, early, I, we originally had it slated for somewhere in the middle of the series, and then some things happened, and I was out of town, and Doug preached a week, and then I preached a week after Doug, where I kind of wanted to match what he said, and this just sort of got put off to the end. And I just wanted to let you know that wasn't intentional. Like, please don't take this as me communicating to you that either, like, that sex is the most important topic, and we've been building toward this the whole series. <laughs> Or that it's the least important topic, and we just finally got around to addressing this that doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't know where it ranks, but I was trying to put it in the middle, and it ended up at the end. So, um, sex is not a topic that I preach on very often, at least like a full sermon devoted to this topic. Um, to the best of my memory, this is the fourth time that I have done it in 12 years. So you can do the math. That's about once every three years. So, congratulations. You're, you're here on a special occasion, I suppose. Um, what's interesting is cultural opinion on this topic has been changing, has been changing rapidly, and has changed so much in the past 12 years that I usually don't preach on this topic the same way twice. Like things change so much, it's kind of hard for a preacher to say something and then a few years later say the same thing because it's not that the scripture has changed, the scripture stayed exactly the same the whole time, but our world has changed. And so because our world has changed, you kind of have to address it from a different angle as the world changes. And so as a, for instance, I want to give you a little review of the past, like the the previous three sermons on sex here at this church. So getting in a time machine and going back to 11 years ago, 11 years ago, I preached on sex at this church. And in that sermon, I looked back at my notes and reread them this week. I said that there was an overlap between what God's opinion is on sex and our culture. This is crazy, but I did. I said there's an overlap. Um, there's an agreement between God's point of view on sex and some of the things that we say in our culture. Not a complete overlap, but there is one thing where they agree on. And what I said back then was um, both God's word and our culture agree that sex is this very powerful thing that has the ability to, to be good or bad. It has the ability to cause harm or to be very good. And so because, of, because it's this very powerful thing that could be good or bad, we need to be very careful with it, and the people who participate in it need to make sure that they are ready. And I said that, that both God and our culture agree on that, and I said, now the difference between God and our culture is God's opinion, like God's definition of ready is married. So God's definition of ready for this, this powerful thing that could go good or bad, God's definition is very like, clear, it's very obvious. Our culture's definition of ready at that time was something like make sure you're mature enough, make sure that you're in love, make sure that the person is the right person. Remember back when people used to say that? And so I was trying to point out then, I said, so God has this very clear boundary, this very clear expectation. It's, it, this could be good or bad, so make sure you are ready. And ready means married. And then our culture has this very blurry, make sure you're in love, make sure they're the right person. Okay. And so I tried to point out how much clearer and more helpful God is than the standards of our culture. I cannot preach that sermon anymore. Okay. Because nobody believes that anymore. Right? That, that, that sounds like a long time ago. Nobody believes that you've got to make sure you're in love with the person. I have watched a lot of TV shows in the past 10 years. And that's no, nobody's saying that anymore. Make sure you're love. Love and sex are two completely unrelated things now. Um, and, and make sure that the person is the right person. Remember when people used to say that? Nobody says that anymore. There could be multiple right people in any given year or any given month. So I can't preach that anymore because that's not what people are saying. So... Let's go back to the Sermon on Sex, where we talked about this just six years ago. Six years ago, I pointed out that sexual ethics in our society 
we're getting to the place where consent was becoming the only moral factor when it comes to sex. Like when you try to decide whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, that the ethics in our society were getting to the point that consent was the only moral factor. The only way you could decide whether sex was right or wrong was just did the other person consent. And I would say we're still probably close to that. That was six years ago. But I think that we are somewhat similar to that, that when it comes to morality, there's nothing really to consider other than like, are they cool with it? And are you cool with it? Then if you're, they're cool with it and you're cool with it, then, then you're cool. Like that's it. There's nothing else more that needs to be thought about it than that. Now, when I look back on that sermon and I look back on that, even that, that idea within our culture, I think there is something inside all of us that knows that sex is more complicated than that. That simply like, well, if they're cool with it and I'm cool with it, then it's cool. Like that is technically the same kind of ethics or the same moral boundaries that we use for things like handshakes and high fives and hugs, right? Like just make sure they're cool with it is what we do. Like when you, like, when you shake someone's hand, you want to make sure that they actually want to touch you, right? You make sure that they consent, especially since COVID, goodness gracious. You stick out your hand and if somebody goes like this, right? <laughs> You don't touch them, right? They don't want to be touched. Okay, you're not cool with it, then that's fine. I'm not a handshaker either, at least not for right now, right? You don't put your arm around someone if they don't want to be touched, right? We all know that, right? They don't want to be touched, then you don't touch them. We know that there's this idea of like, yeah, there has to be consent. Don't, don't, don't touch someone. But, but if they do consent, there's not a whole lot more to think about it. You don't have to decide if the handshake is God's will or anything, right? You just, like, if they're cool with it and you're cool with it, then it's fine, right? That's just, that's how we handle high fives. That's how we handle handshakes. That's how we handle hugs. And I think there's something in us that knows there has got to be a different set of rules for sex than for handshakes, right? Even if you don't know why, I think there's something in you that just knows it's got to be more complicated than that. There's no way that the ethics of high fives is the same thing. All right, now going back to two years ago. Two years ago, we were preaching through the book of Proverbs, and we came across the adultery passages. And the adultery passages in Proverbs are primarily in in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And it is, that section of Proverbs is a section where this father figure is speaking to his son, his adult married son, and warning him against adultery, warning him to stay away from the forbidden woman. And so we did a a sermon on that in those chapters. And as we were talking about this warning for the, you know, this married man, and he needs to watch out for the forbidden woman, um, in that sermon, I, I... Basically, because of the prevalence of bisexuality, I talked about how married Christians need to watch out for the forbidden woman and or the forbidden man if applicable, right? In other words, I tried to explain in that sermon that the Bible doesn't simply forbid cheating on your spouse with the opposite sex, that the Bible forbids cheating on your spouse with anybody, okay? I don't know if you remember that, but anyway, I said that. That is something that... I said because of the time period that we were in two years ago, okay? That is something that would not have ever even entered into my mind at the 11 years ago sermon, right? Like 11 years ago, that, that was not prevalent enough that it even crossed my mind to say that. But two years ago, we did. So that's what I mean by things, things change. And so <clears throat> what you say can't be the same thing every time. So here we are. 2023, Good News Church sex sermon number four. <laughs> <clears throat> This morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on just one question, and the question I want to focus on is, why is sex only for marriage? I think when our, like when a culture has kind of gone crazy, I mean, that's my opinion, when a culture has kind of gone way off course, sometimes the best thing to do is just to go back and and just answer some of the very fundamental questions that were abandoned a long time ago. And so the question is, why is sex only for marriage? 
I say it was abandoned a long time ago because in this country, there was a point where you didn't really have to ask, ask and answer that question. Most of Americans had opinions on that and believed it was only for marriage. Like I looked up opinion polls, um, one of them from 1969, so that was 54 years ago. 54 years ago in this country, they asked questions, and I can't remember exactly how it was phrased, but it was basically like, how, how do you feel about sex outside of marriage? You know, like for or against, is it right or is it wrong? Specifically, um, like two people who are not married to each other or married to anybody. I don't think it was specifically about adultery. I think it was just like a boyfriend, girlfriend, moving in together, having sex with each other. Like, how, what, is, that, is that a sin or is it not a sin? Okay, at the time, in 1969, 70% of Americans said that it was wrong. 70% of Americans disapproved of sex outside of marriage, which is huge. I mean, that's like nearly three out of four people. Like, um, that number is now 27%. And when I say now, um, that's the, the... You have a wasp, A wasp? Yes. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> this is why you need to be in a small group, because... I might, as well, I might as well take a chance on this, okay, because there are lots of people here. I don't know how many saw the wasp, but it's the person in my community group that was willing to save my life. <laughs> okay, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. When I said 20%, 27% of people believe that um, sex is only for marriage and you're not supposed to have sex before you're married, um, that 27% is a figure from the year 2020. I wasn't even able to find data for this year, so... Um, Oh, I mean, I didn't try really hard. I just Googled. But anyway, but um, so that was the most recent data I was able to find. So from 1969 to 2020, so during those 50 years, it went from 70% to 27%. So we got about three out of four people who says it's wrong. And now we've got to the point where it's about one out of four people who think sex is only for marriage. And so that's why I think I need to answer this question, because most people simply do not connect these two things anymore. Sex and marriage are just two different topics now for most people. So why is sex only for marriage? I think the answer to the question will be helpful to both married people and unmarried people. But before we get into it, let me begin with some scripture. Um, in fact, I want to begin today with a whole bunch of scripture. Today I'm going to read to you a lengthy passage, um, perhaps the, the longest, like the, I don't know if in the New Testament there's any place where, they, where it talks about sex for such an extended period of time as it does in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. So if you have your Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 all the way to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. So kind of a whole chapter, although it's two halves of two chapters. Um, I think it's important that we ground what we say and what we hear in God's word. And so let's begin with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is God's word, and this is what it says. It says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? 
So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, but... Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say the following as a concession, not a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So that's quite a bit, that's a very extended discussion on um, sexuality in 1 Corinthians. And there's a fairly simple sexual ethic outlined in that passage, or like this just given. I mean, maybe it's implied, but it's, it, I think it's pretty clear, especially in the second half, the stuff that I read from chapter 7. And so I'm just going to explain the very simple sexual ethic that you find in that passage by just kind of summarizing it in four phrases, okay? Sex is not for unmarried people. Celibacy is for unmarried people. Sex is for married people. Celibacy is not for unmarried people. Okay, very simple. I think all of that is either said or implied in this passage. The sex is not for unmarried people. Celibacy is for unmarried people. I think you see that in verses like chapter seven, verse one and verse eight. Chapter seven, verse one, he says, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Now, he may very well be quoting the Corinthians back to them at that point, saying, I'm responding to when you said this. But even so, factoring in what he says in the rest of this chapter and what he says in his other books, I don't see any reason to assume that Paul disagrees with the idea that it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. It's good for a man who's not married to a woman to not touch her, right? To not have a sexual relationship with her. You can also see this in verse eight of the same chapter. He says, I say to the unmarried and to widows... It is good for them if they remain as I am. At the time that Paul wrote this, he was someone who was single and celibate. And he was saying, this is a great idea. Do this. All right? Sex is not for unmarried people. Celibacy is for unmarried people. Um, then the next part, sex is for married people, I think is very strongly implied in verse 9, the next verse. But if they do not have self-control, right? He says, it's good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should what? Mary. That's the assumption. He doesn't say if they don't have self-control, they should go find a prostitute, right? The prostitute was actually forbidden in the chapter before. It was marriage that they are told. That's the place where the sex is supposed to happen, right? Um, if they, it is better to marry than to burn with desire. And then the idea that celibacy is not for married people is found in chapter 7, verse 5. He says, 
Do not deprive one another sexually. So right in the midst of a, like, there's certain parts of this where it's like, don't have sex. And then in the midst of the same section, he commands them, do not deprive one another sexually. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to the married people. He had just said each person, the man should have the wife and the husband, you know, that whole thing. And so then he says, do not deprive one another sexually. Celibacy is not for married people. There's a, I, I think this is very important. There's a guy that I used to work with. Um, he's a pastor. And this is the way that he phrased the idea. He said, and I think this is so helpful. He said, faithfulness in marriage isn't just not having sex with other people. It is having sex with your spouse. And I think that's so important. So sex is not for unmarried people. Celibacy is for unmarried people. Sex is for married people. Celibacy is not for married people. The standard is very clear. But the question is, why? Why is it this way? Uh, not too long ago, I was having lunch with someone who attends church here. And I think he's, a, he, I got the impression he's a fairly new Christian. And as we were talking, um, he asked me the question, why is sex for marriage? He didn't ask it in a cynical way. He didn't ask it in a critical way. He didn't, you know, it wasn't like, I can't believe y'all believe that. Why? He just said, why is sex for marriage? And what I said to him, I think, I believe I said to him that, well, the, the first reason is because God said so. Like, we do have to start there. The first reason is because God said so. Like, God has given us a book. God has given us revelation for how we are to live. And he, has, he said that. And that is enough. Even if God didn't tell us any more than that, he is trustworthy and his word is enough. But I said to the guy, I said, but does that answer your question? Or are you asking, why does God say so? And he said, that's what I'm asking. Like, I know God says so. I want to know, why does God say so? And so um, I gave him uh, two answers. Uh, in fact, I think I said to him this, because this is the same thing I'm going to say to you. Um, I don't know for sure the answer, like th that there's this one right, perfect, comprehensive, answers all of everybody's questions answer to why does God say so? Because there isn't a place in the Bible where God says, sex is for married people, and here's the list, for all, uh, here's the list of all the reasons. Like it's not, that way, it's not that way in the scripture. So I don't know that I can give you the perfect, comprehensive answer. Um, but there is a lot in the Bible on this topic. And I believe that we can figure out some of the reasons why. And so I'm not going to give you all the reasons this morning because I don't even know if I know all of the reasons. But I'm going to give you two reasons, the two reasons that I gave that guy that day when we were having lunch together. Um, but I will just let you know there are probably more than the two reasons I'm going to give you. Um, the book of Proverbs talks quite a bit about sex outside of marriage and the problems with it, especially the pain and suffering that it causes in this life. The emphasis is especially on adultery, but also like the forbidden woman that flatters you with smooth talk and all of these terrible things that happen. And so the pain that is associated with extramarital sex is talked about in Proverbs. I'm not even going to get into that. Like that's a whole nother piece that I'm not going to get into. Um, also, uh, last week or two weeks ago, um, I heard a sermon by a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan. And he said something I thought was really interesting. This is a paraphrase, but he said this. He said, he was, trying, he was basically answering the same question, why sex for marriage only? And he said, to give someone your body, but not your life, is to fracture yourself in a way that God never intended. He said that God, when he made us, made us whole persons, and so when you give yourself to someone else and you, you separate the, the material part of you from the immaterial part of you, because you know that you have the kind of, there's two parts of you, right? There's the material part of you, your body, and then there's the immaterial part of you, your mind, your love, your faithfulness, your loyalty, like all these things that are really you, but they don't exist like in the physical world, but it really is you. 
And so if you are to give someone the material part of you, but not the immaterial part of you, you are separating yourself in a way that God didn't intend. God intended for us to be whole persons and give ourselves as whole persons. And I thought that was a really great, compelling answer. But that's not the answer I'm giving you today, okay? I'm going to give you the two reasons that I gave that guy when I was sitting across the table from him, okay? These two answers are what came into my mind as soon as he asked, well, why does God say that? And I believe both of these answers are found and assumed in the scripture and are important. So here's my official answer if I'm going to put the whole sermon into one sentence, okay? Why is sex only for marriage? Here's the answer. Because sex is a behavior that causes procreation and relational union. That's my answer. Why is sex only for marriage? Because sex is a behavior that causes procreation and relational union. So let's take those one at a time, starting with procreation. Sex is a behavior that causes procreation. We know this. The Bible acknowledges this very early on. I'm going to go really early on in the Bible here. This is Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read to you. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Adam was intimate with his wife Eve. All right, this is a euphemism for sex, right? Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Then later on in the same chapter, uh, verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Okay, so <clears throat> these are just two of many verses that connect sex to procreation. Now, the Bible is not the only place that connects sex to procreation. Science also makes that connection, right? This is in every biology textbook everywhere, right? It has been known to humanity for thousands of years. Prior to the invention of birth control, which was just 60 years ago. I don't know, this is kind of crazy to think about this. It was just 60 years ago. When I say birth control, I guess I'm referring to the pill when it was invented. Okay, prior to the invention of birth control, people, and this, when I say prior to the invention of birth control, if, if birth control has just been around for the past 60 years, that means the time before that would have been 99% of human history. Right, so for 99% of human history, humans were very aware that if you had a sexual relationship with someone, it was possible that you'd create another person with that someone. Obviously, depending on your age. <clears throat> now, there, I think, is an obvious practical connection between procreation and marriage. Because when you make a new person, okay, and the new person comes out, the new people are not, um, in, they're not independent, right? Babies do not cook. Babies do not clean. Babies do not buy and sell stocks, right? So the, the, the new humans are dependent, and they benefit most from growing up in a stable household of love and care and concern and teaching and training towards successful adulthood. It makes perfect sense to me why God would connect procreation to marriage, why God would connect parenting to a long-term permanent living situation. So if sex is connected to procreation, and procreation is practically connected to marriage, it makes sense to me why sex would be connected to marriage, right? God cares about the next generation and the, the environment that they grow up in. Now, someone could say, yeah, yeah, but birth control takes care of all this, right? So now that we have that, we, no one is born outside of a marriage. <laughs> well, but first of all, that's not true. That's not what happened. Um, but even if it did... Birth control technology does not change the other purposes of sexuality or God's will regarding it. And that brings us to reason number two. And I want to I get to reason number two because I think this one will probably be more compelling to our culture, even though reason number one is really important because it really shows how we are to treat the next generation. But I think the second reason will be more compelling to most of us, and that is sex causes relational union. Sex causes relational union. 
Um, procreation is not the only reason for sex. If procreation were the only reason for sex, maybe birth control would change some of the ethics behind it because we'd be able to do something different, you know. Um, and even before there was birth control, if procreation were the only reason for sex, Christians would have forbidden sex from people who can't have children. And, and Christians would have forbidden sex for all women after men menopause. But that's not what Christians have done, right? That's not the case. Why? Why have we not done that? Because there's another reason for sex other than procreation, and it is that sex causes relational union. Now, this is something that I think you can see in the passage that we read earlier, so I'm going to go back to it, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there was a section just before you got to the uh, each woman should have her own husband and each husband have his own wife. Just before that section was the section about the prostitute and you are joined to Christ and why would you make yourself a part of a prostitute if you're a part of Christ? And I just want to, I hope you remember that part. I just read it a few minutes ago. Look at verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her for scripture says the two will become one flesh. Now, is there a part of that verse that sounds familiar to you? Oh, I hope so. The two will become one flesh? Yeah, because we've quoted that several times in this series. The second week of this series, we talked about Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and that's the first place in the Bible where this phrase appears. The two will become one flesh. So Paul's writing here, and he says, don't you know that when you join with the prostitute, you are two becoming one, Right? The person who's joined with the prostitute is one body with her, and he brings up our verse from Genesis. The two will become one flesh. Now, when we learned this verse a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' quotation of this verse, and Jesus talked about two become one within the context of marriage, that marriage is two become one. But I told you, even in that sermon, that there, is, there are some like sexual overtones to this phrase, the two become one flesh. And one of the ways that I knew that is because I knew this verse was coming. Like, I knew Paul quoted it in this sense. He's not really talking about anybody marrying a prostitute, right? He's talking about sexual activity here, right? When he says, don't you know that anyone who's joined a prostitute, clearly that's a reference to having sex with the prostitute. And he's saying that it, it joins them because the two become one. He is one body with her. It seems that he's explaining, he seems to believe that the, the sex act causes some kind of union or some kind of connectedness, between the participants. The concern here is not procreation. You notice that, right? The, the concern here is not you might get the prostitute pregnant, right? The passage focuses on that you are joining with someone that you are not supposed to join with now that you're joined to Christ. The joining is the thing that it's about. Now, this may be non-controversial for some of you. Okay, because I would say even people who are not Christians sometimes say things like, hey, sex brings people together, right? Have you heard that? It's great. You know, or someone will say, when I sleep with my wife or when I have sex with my boyfriend, when we are intimate with one another, I just, I feel so connected to him and I have all these feelings and whatever, right? Sex brings people together. And I would say to that, yes, it does. It's my opinion, um, and I'll label this as my opinion, but it's, it, it's my opinion that sex is something like relationship glue. And it connects people in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be connected. And maybe you've seen this in your life or in other people's lives. I, I feel like I saw this a lot when I was a youth pastor, or at least sometimes. When I was a youth pastor, there would be you know, lots of different like, kids that would come to our youth group events. Okay? So we had a bunch of different like, high school kids, girls and guys, all different backgrounds, all showing up for these youth events. And then they would talk, and I would get to hear some of the things that these teenagers were saying. 
And one of the things that I noticed, and I think this happened more than once, is you would have a girl who's in high school, and she's having sex with her boyfriend, who's also in high school. And there were times where I would observe that high school girl who's having sex with high school boyfriend, and as I watched their lives, like a lot of times high school boyfriend was treating her like dirt. And she was just going along with it. Multiple times I would see these relationships and I was like, why are you staying with him? Like he's a jerk. There were high school girls that were putting up with what I thought was pretty ridiculous behavior. And they just stuck with the guy. And then sometimes they'd break up with him and I'd be like, yes. And then they'd get back together and I'm like, no, why? And then they'd break up again and I'm like, that's good. That's the right track. And then they'd get back together and I'm like, what is going on? Like you knew he was a loser. That's why you broke up with him. Why is he now? Why are you back with him? And I remember during that era, Taylor Swift had a song that came out. Remember the one where it said, we are never, ever, ever getting back together? And I remember loving that song because I, I thought about like kids in my youth group and I thought like some of the girls in our youth group, like one in particular, I remember thinking she needs to sing that to the man in her life and then walk away forever. But it seemed like there was this connectedness that they had that shouldn't have been there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Now, I don't know that Paul had all of that in mind when he spoke about sexual union in 1 Corinthians 6, 16. But he does talk about the two will become one flesh, and he talks about in related relationship to this, sleeping with this prostitute. And I will say this. If marriage is a two become one thing, it makes sense to me why the two become one act would be for marriage. If sex causes union... In some sense, it makes sense that God would reserve it for people who've made their relationship permanent. It makes sense that a good God would be a loving father and would tell humanity, this is the way I designed it. This is the way you are to use it. So if you are unmarried, don't give your body to someone who you are not united to in life. And if you are married... Do the union-causing act with the person you are united to regularly until you are too old to do it anymore. (laughs) One last thought. And I want to ask this question to me from you for the sake of some of you who may be thinking this because I can imagine there might be some of you that might go, okay, Mario... What if I've already sinned? What if it's too late? Like this would have been a wonderful sermon to have heard when I was 14 years old, okay? But I didn't. So what do I do now? What if I've already strayed from God's ways? I mean, when talking about God's standards for sexuality with this many people in the room, it is inevitable that it is going to bring up some sense of guilt and shame if you take it seriously, right? And in a sense, it's supposed to. Sins if left unforgiven, earn God's judgment. God's wrath is upon us because of our sin. However, forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ. And so I really want to be clear on this because I think there is a mindset. I think there's something that sometimes gets in people's heads. And it probably happens to both sexes, but I feel like I see this happen to females more often than males. But I'll say this to whoever needs to hear it. But it seems like this happens to females more often than males. There is this mindset that goes... Well, I used to be pure, but I've sinned sexually. So, like, I I used to be pure, like, I used to be, whatever, 13, 14, but now I've sinned sexually, so I'm not. 
and there's no way to go back. So I'm just dirty now. And I'm dirty forever. And if I'm dirty forever, I might as well just go and do whatever with whoever. Baloney. The whole point of the gospel is that no one who trusts in Christ has to stay dirty forever. No one has to stay dirty forever. In fact, no one in Christ is dirty. Like in God's eyes, no one in Christ is dirty. And it's, his opinion is the only one that matters. So let me end by reading the first three verses. The last three verses we read today are going to be the first three verses that I read to you earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? That right there is why we have to take sin seriously. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now look at this. And some of you used to be like this, but you were, what's the word? Washed. That is fantastic. Some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. Not you washed yourself. Someone else came and washed you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, turn from sin to Jesus and be cleansed. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you are clean. Now go be who you are and not who you were. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this. I pray for our country because it does seem as though there was a period of time where we as a culture understood this, understood what you have declared better than we do now. And I'm sure there's pros and cons to all this. There were probably lots of people back then that pretended to be Christians that weren't. And now, like people that say they believe stuff, it seems like we, more often they really do believe it because it's not popular to believe it anymore. So I guess there's pros and cons to all this, but in general, it does not seem that, that our culture is improving, that we, we, have, we have turned our back on truths that we knew. And so we ask you to forgive us. <coughs> and we thank you that you do. You come in into our lives and you wash and you sanctify and you justify. We could never, we could never wash ourselves and sanctify ourselves and justify ourselves. We would just be doomed. We would be dirty forever. But you come in and change us into new people so that we can sing songs like you're the in-between because I'm not who I was. Now I'm different. Not different because I tried harder, different because God came into my life and changed me. He washed me. And so for us, those of us in this room, there may be some of us that are trying to follow you and it's just hard to stay the course. And I pray that you would give us the self-control and the faithfulness and the obedience to continue to stay the course. And I pray if there's anybody in this room that feels ashamed of their sins, I pray they would feel the right kind of shame in that they would turn to you, be forgiven, and then no longer be ashamed. And I pray that you would grant them that forgiveness. I pray you'd make us a congregation that conforms to your word and is so grateful to you for your grace and your washing. I pray that people who don't know you will come to know you even today. And those of us who know you, I pray that you would help us to be who we are and not who we were. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.